On April 25th, 1873, Captain George Jake Randall was on his way to Fort Apache, traveling along the Mogollon Rim, when he spotted a sight that was all too tempting. Randall, a favorite subordinate of Lieutenant Colonel George Crook, had been campaigning across Arizona for the past several months as part of a larger coordinated effort to bring the Yavapai and Apache into line. As part of that campaign, four months earlier, his detachment had found the encampment of a Yavapai leader from the Mazatals named Del Shea, or Red Ant, who was the very symbol of resistance to the Americans. Delche was so secure in his ability to evade the White Eyes' authority that he had spurned even talking with Peace Commissioners Vincent Collier and General Oliver Otis Howard. Randall's raid in December 1872 had led to a two-hour battle that saw 14 dead Yavapai and the burning of Delche's rancheria. However, the wily chief and most of his followers had managed to slip away into the rugged Arizona terrain, like they always had. So now, months later, Randall was amazed when he spotted Delshay's band along the shores of Canyon Creek, east of modern Young. The captain eagerly anticipated battle with his foe, but that's when Delshay did the unexpected. He hoisted a white flag. It was Randall's destiny not to fight the symbol of Yavapai resistance, but bring it into Fort Apache without ever having to fire a shot. How exactly Del Shea, and all like him, went from determined American foe to defeated supplicant is today's story. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Episode 66, The Very Rocks Had Gotten Soft. Welcome back, everyone. Last time, we saw history being made as General Howard, with assistance from the semi-mythical Tom Jeffords, managed to finally create a peace treaty with Cochise, the great boogeyman of the Apache in southern Arizona. Of course, we know now that this treaty would hold through the end of Cochise's life, But those at the time didn't know A, when that life would be over, and B, if the peace would actually hold until then. Newspaper editorials from shortly after the treaty was announced predicted that the peace would not last through the next summer. One even wrote, quote, Cochise so far has deported himself, but there is something in the genial sunshine of the spring months which usually overcomes his good resolves, and he is not responsible for climatic operations, end quote. Though many would eventually congratulate Howard on the treaty and see it as an important turning point, at the time the general was censured a bit for essentially giving into all of Cochise's demands. After all, he had given Cochise the reservation he wanted, and a sizable one at that, with his good friend as Indian agent and a complete lack of military oversight. Also, we have to consider the understandable point that many settlers in Arizona did not want peace with Cochise. They wanted him punished. The great leader had cut a swath across the territory for more than a decade, and that included a very high American body count. So there was a feeling among many that Cochise should be given a noose, 
not a new reservation. No one may have fumed more than Crook, who had been in the territory for nearly a year and a half now and had to basically sit on his hands the entire time. In letters and in private, he grumbled about how he hadn't been shown the particulars of the treaty first, and how, when he requested them, he had been rebuffed. Part of this was the fact that nothing had actually been written down, which, as you can imagine, would lead to further problems. Crook also believed the treaty as agreed upon only guaranteed that the Apache would not attack Americans anymore, but they could continue to ride into Mexico and pillage all they wanted. This was not strictly accurate, but the subject of raiding south of the border will be a major bone of contention over the next few years. Finally, Crook blamed Howard for recent issues with the tribes living at the San Carlos and Camp Verde reservations. Namely, and you can really hear his ego on this one, he said Howard's treaty made those tribes think he was scared of Cochise, since Crook had never been able to ride out against the chief. But then Crook received the best possible news. On November 7, 1872, Howard returned to Washington to file his exhaustive report on what had occurred during his time in Arizona. And this time, there was not another peace commissioner being sent, as it happened after Collier. This time, Crook was left to his own devices. This time, his long-delayed campaign against any hostile tribe could begin in earnest. The man whom the Apaches would come to refer to as Natan Lupin, Chief Wolf, had finally been let off his chain. He hadn't exactly been idle while not being able to campaign. As we noted a couple episodes back, he had ridden in to find and punish the Yavapai suspected as having been part of the Wickenburg Massacre. Crook had also spent his time making sure that the army enlisted, and kept employed, the services of the foremost mule train in the Southwest, while Collier and Howard had been doing their thing. Author and historian Paul Andrew Hutton says that Crook had a fascination bordering on obsession with the humble mule. His own personal mount was named Apache, which he would ride throughout his campaigns. Crook completely revamped how mules were used, hiring able packmasters while firing those who abused the animals. He got rid of the standard military pack cushions in favor of a better-fitted Mexican style, in addition to using several layers of blankets to prevent sores on the animals. He also insisted on the best items money could buy, making the very logical argument that while campaigning in the middle of nowhere, it was impossible to replace something that broke. When your men relied on the mules for ammunition or supplies, you couldn't leave them starving and defenseless because you bought a cheap saddle. All this effort paid off, and his pack train improvements would become the standard for the military virtually up until it stopped using mules. With his mules now in order, his men ready, and Howard out of the picture, Crook let it be known that the campaign would kick off in earnest on November 15, 1872. The timing of this campaign, late fall going into winter, was a very intentional choice. Normally, this would be the time when both he and his wily adversaries would be holed up for the winter. But by attacking now, it would slow down the Apache and Yavapai, hampered as they were with their families, made foraging for more food impossible, 
and the cold weather made sure that they couldn't flee to higher elevations. He also reasoned that the snowpack would furnish his mobile units with enough water. The idea, once again, was to let any Apache surrender, but to relentlessly pursue and cut down those who refused to do so. The orders were that women and children were to be captured alive and prisoners were to be well-treated, but if experience has taught us one thing so far, it's that that particular order wasn't always going to happen. When the campaign kicked off in earnest, columns marched out of Camp Wallapai, northwest of Prescott, with other detachments leaving Camp Date Creek and Camp Verde, and further expeditions leaving from Fort Apache, Camp Grant, and Fort McDowell. By the end of 1872, Crook would have nine full columns out in the field. No discussion of Crook's winter campaign of 1872-1873 would be complete without mentioning the absolutely essential service by the various Apache scouts enlisted as guides. We talked about Crook's systemic use of Apache guides back in episode 63, but seeing what a large role they will play in the campaign, I want to really emphasize this point. John G. Burke, who served as an aide to Crook and would write a book about the experience called, appropriately, On the Border with Crook, summed up the Army's feelings about the scouts when he related, quote, The longer we knew the Apache scouts, the better we liked them. They were wilder and more suspicious than the Pima and the Maricopas, but far more reliable and endowed with a greater amount of courage and daring, end quote. These scouts, which were usually a day or so ahead of the main body of the army under American officers, seemed to know every inch of the territory and were experts at spotting the traces of other Apaches, no matter what band they belonged to. The Odom, despite their long track record of fighting the Apache, frustrated the American officers with their long, elaborate death rituals that took place immediately after combat. By contrast, the Apache, in Burke's words, tended to wait until after the campaigns were over and then to bunch their ceremonies together. Crook was back at Fort Apache at the end of November 1872, where Burke began actively recruiting Apache scouts. A few days later, he had enrolled at least 47 Apaches to serve as guides, mostly from the Western White Mountain Band. Since the Army officers could never really pronounce the proper names of these scouts, they often resorted to nicknames that stuck. So it is that we have Apache scouts called Peaches, Dutchy, Dandy Jim, Cutmouth Mose, Buckshot, Daniel Webster, and Slim Jim. The nicknaming wasn't all one-sided, as the Apaches referred to Burke as Natan Hos de Jule, or Chief Cactus. But one recruit that intrigued the American leaders was a young Apache man with red hair, a light complexion, and a single blue eye. The army officers called him Mickey Free, but he was, in fact, none other than the not-so-dead Felix Ward, the young boy stolen from his father's ranch in January 1861 and whose abduction had led directly to the Bascom Affair, and really to the war they were all now fighting. Life had not been extraordinarily kind to Felix after his abduction, but it had been kind enough. After being beckoned onto that horse underneath the peach tree at his father's ranch, 
he had been spirited away to Aravipa Canyon. As I mentioned during my introduction to Eskimazin in episode 62, the chief was given the boy shortly after the raid. Once in the midst of the Apache, Felix was expected to learn their ways, speak their language, and manage to stay alive. He was not truly part of the band, but instead a slave and outsider who was to do as he was told. He did not stay with the Aravipa Apache in Long, but was traded to a shaman or a medicine man among the White Mountain Apache before eventually being traded to a chief named Nyamdie. And once again, my apologies for my pronunciation on that. Unlike Eskimizen, Nyamdie treated Felix almost like an adopted son, raising him alongside his own son, who would eventually go on to be an Apache scout himself that went by the name of John Rope. For the record, I love these scout names. In this way, Felix really learned to live and work as an Apache, eventually able to hunt with them. He participated in the same strength training as all Apache boys, including bathing in icy creeks, rolling in the snow, wrestling matches, and races up and down steep mountain slopes. Though Felix had to work extra hard, as most of the Apache boys were already well used to doing such exercises by the time they were his age. He was also apparently a good dancer and was much sought after as a partner during his band's festivities, both for his prowess on the dance floor and his prominently alien red hair. Under such conditions, we shouldn't be surprised that Felix went fully native embracing his adopted family's culture and language. By the time the soldiers eventually made it to the White Mountains near his adopted people, he had no inclination to tell them his story or even think about returning with the White Eyes. For all intents and purposes, he was now an Apache. But while he was accepted by the White Mountain Apache and tolerated by the Aravipa Apache, Felix would be forever hated by the Chiricahua. Stung as they were by the Bascom Affair and the decades of war that followed, they always considered him partly responsible for bringing destruction to their doorstep. Now, as a young man, he was bringing about war once again. This time, though ironically, it was for the very army that had so disastrously failed to retrieve him in the first place. You'll find several versions out there of the origin of his scout name of Mickey Free, but the most often repeated is that he was named for a colorful character in the 1840 military romance novel Charles O'Malley, the Irish Dragoon, due to his impish nature and wild mop of red hair. That same red hair and missing eye would make him a curiosity wherever he went, leading Mickey Free to be one of the more memorable of all the Apache scouts. And please believe me when I say we will have a lot more to say about Mickey Free as the Apache Wars drag on, especially because in coming years it will be said that he was the only man that Geronimo ever feared. With his scouts now recruited and everyone put on notice, Crook's campaign could begin in earnest. Though troops were sent out from a variety of posts, Much of the main action occurred in the Tonto Basin, which is where modern State Route 188 and Pumpkin Center exist today, north of Roosevelt Lake. The basin, with its twisting side canyons, ravines, and other geological features, 
had been a favorite hiding place of the Tonto Apache and Yavapai for years. You might even recall that this was the same area where the infamous King Woolsey had his run-ins with the Apaches back in the mid-1860s. Crook's campaign began on the outskirts and then slowly backed the Apache and Yavapai into the basin, where the elements were doing a lot of their work for them. State historian Thomas Sheridan describes the action as, quote, a bloody, grueling success. Crook himself would write, quote, The officers and men worked day and night, and with our Indian allies would crawl upon their hands and knees for long distances over terrible canyons and precipices, where the slightest mishap would have resulted in instant death, in order that when daylight came they might attack their enemy and secure the advantage of surprise. End quote. Please note again Crook's use of Indian allies, by which he means the Apache scouts, whom he came to prize as a vital part of all his campaigns in Arizona. Now, most of the engagements in this campaign were not giant set-piece battles, which was simply not the Apache way. Instead, we have Crook's men carrying out a brutal winter campaign of total war, putting to the torch or otherwise destroying any weapons, clothing, food, or shelters they came across. For the natives they were fighting, who subsisted during the winter months on all they had gathered, stored, and preserved during the rest of the year, this was a huge, devastating blow. Essentially, they were given a stark choice. Starve or surrender. While these scorched earth tactics were essentially shepherding the remaining Apache into the Tonto Basin, that didn't mean there weren't some battles, or rather massacres, occurring as well. One of the most notable happened in the Salt River Canyon at a place now called Skull Cave, for reasons that will soon become obvious. In late December, a group of soldiers were led by Apache scouts to the area, looking for local rancherias. As Burke, who was present for the events, writes, a group of Yavapai were found dancing around a fire, but after the first volley from the soldiers' rifles, they retreated into a nearby shallow cave in the cliff walls. This cave had large rocks at its opening, which formed a sort of parapet from which the defenders could shower arrows, lances, and even some bullets at the soldiers, and which made storming the cave a very dicey proposition. Undeterred, the soldiers had interpreters yell to the more than 75 people inside to lay down their arms and surrender immediately. Unsurprisingly, the response from inside the cave was a series of defiant yells and insults. You know, do your worst and that sort of thing. According to Burke, the commander of the soldiers repeated his call to surrender and followed that up with a plea to have the women and children leave the cave on the condition that they would be well treated by the army. The response from inside remained the same, defiant yells and howls. A stalemate broke out as both sides tried to figure out their next move. But the Yavapai, despite their protected position, were not that advantageously placed. As I said, this was a shallow cave, and the soldiers soon learned that all they had to do was aim their rifles at the roof of the cave, above the boulders, and their bullets would ricochet downward and hit those hiding inside. The cries of men, women, and children rose up as the bullets poured into their hiding place. The shooting was again stopped to demand the Yavapai surrender. 
The Americans were again met by yells, but different this time. According to Burke, the army interpreter suddenly sounded an alarm, saying that the yells were part of a death song, and moments later, roughly 20 Yavapai stormed over the parapet and made a charge at the troops. But this charge was doomed to failure, and after suffering heavy losses under withering gunfire, the group slunk back into the cave. And believe it or not, things are only going to get worse for the Yavapai. Because a detachment of soldiers had been sent out earlier that day, and they crested the top of the canyon walls above the cave. Quickly, they began to loose boulders and drop them straight down on the Yavapai below, wreaking all sorts of destruction and havoc. By now, the sounds of shrieks and gunfire from inside the cave ceased, and the order was given at noon to advance on the mouth. What they found inside was a gruesome scene, with Burke estimating that half the people in the cave, maybe as many as 50, were already dead, with most of the rest writhing in pain for their final moments, having taken shelter behind what thin layers of rock they could find, or even behind the bodies of their fallen comrades. All in all, some 76 Yavapai were either shot or stoned to death during the standoff, with only 18 women and children leaving the cave alive. Years later, an activist for Native American rights made a journey to what became known as Skull Cave to help collect the bones of the dead. He would write, quote, In that cave on the wall, it looked like oil sprayed on. Down on the floor it looked like oil. There is that oil all over. End quote. It goes without saying, but that was not oil. This massacre was matched by one a few months later in March 1873 near the Verde River north of Horseshoe Lake. It all started with a native raid near Wickenburg that had killed three individuals. But one of those, an 18-year-old British immigrant named George Taylor, hadn't just been killed but gruesomely tortured. Not to put too fine a point on it, but he had been rolled in cactus, his eyelids and ears cut off, and his body stuck full of splinters that were set on fire— and that's before the arrow wounds. Remember, there was a reason that being captured by the Apaches, or the Apache-like Yavapai, was often feared as a fate worse than death. That the Americans would retaliate was a foregone conclusion. The Yavapai pulled back to a certain village that was situated atop a high column of circular rock known today as Turret Peak. Because of its elevation and steep sides, it was considered impregnable. But always remember, folks, if the long, sad march of military history has taught us anything, it's that determined commanders will always find a way to breach a place deemed impregnable. Three women had been captured by the army and were forced to give up the location of this village. And with this information, and the Apache scouts, including Mickey Free guiding them, the army decided that they had to take it. By night, soldiers and scouts slowly crawled their way up the mountain. One source said it was about a 45-degree incline the entire way, crawling over sharp lava rocks that, because this is Arizona, was studded with cactus. The soldiers wore gunny sacks wrapped around their boots to muffle the noise of their footsteps, crawling on hands and feet so they wouldn't send any stones crashing down and give away their position. Hutton writes that it was a grueling ascent and that Mickey Free and the other scouts had to physically pull exhausted soldiers over the rocks. 
but their effort paid off, and at dawn, the soldiers managed to get to the top of Turret Peak and completely catch the Yavapai off guard. In the ensuing chaos, several of the Rancheria's residents threw themselves off the peak in either a defiant last moment or a Hail Mary attempt to escape. At least 33 warriors were killed by the soldiers, with 13 women and children taken captive. The engagements at Skull Cave and Turret Peak, coupled with the relentless winter campaign, broke the fighting spirit of the Apache and the Yavapai. Natives, at first stragglers, but then groups and finally whole bands, began to turn themselves in to the army forts in the spring of 1873. According to Burke, Crook met with the chiefs of these bands and promised them that if they would stop raiding and live on the reservation, he would be their best friend. They were to stay on their reservations, maintain the peace with Americans, Mexicans, and other tribes, and they must work to raise crops. If they did so, Crook promised that they would be protected by the army and that they would be paid justly. Burke is undoubtedly biased. If you read his book, he'll make you think that Crook could walk on water. But from all my reading, it seems that Crook was a stern but fair man. He meant what he said. Like an exasperated parent, he didn't care who started the conflict. He only cared that it was now over. There are some stipulations, like tagging those who agreed to settle on a reservation, and that will cause nothing but problems, but his campaign had done more to settle the Indian question than any other in the history of the territory. On April 9, 1873, he formally closed the campaign with General Order 14, which said that the troops had, quote, outwitted and beaten the wiliest of foes with slight loss comparatively to themselves, and finally closed an Indian war that had been waged since the days of Cortez. End quote. But perhaps the real end of the campaign happened when Randall encountered Del Shea's band along the Mogollon Rim, and the chief instantly surrendered. According to Crook, Del Shea would later tell him, quote, He had had 125 warriors last fall, and if anybody had told him he couldn't whip the world, he would have laughed at them. But now he only had 20 left. He said they used to have no difficulties in eluding troops, but now the very rocks had gotten soft. They couldn't put their foot anywhere without leaving an impression by which we could follow. End quote. The reason the rocks had gotten soft was undoubtedly the enlisted Apache scouts who had proved their value to the army time and time again. Promotions were doled out to these scouts, and in June 1873, 26 of them, including Mickey Free, signed up for another six months of service. Crook even put in the name of his favorite scout, Alchese, to receive the Medal of Honor. But this being 19th century America, most of the credit wound up on the shoulders of Crook himself. In October 1873, a telegraph line from Fort Yuma to Prescott had been completed, and the very first news transmitted along the wire was that President Grant had promoted Crook two levels to the rank of Brigadier General. The newspaper in Prescott praised him as, quote, the Napoleon of successful Indian fighters, end quote. And we're going to leave things here for this week, with Crook relishing in his success and the territory breathing one giant sigh of relief. 
But join me next week when we discuss the fallout from all these bans agreeing to live on reservations that were too small, haphazardly administered, and always lacking in supplies. Because, spoiler, it will not go well. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, the history of Arizona. Goodbye.